I'm not superstitious, but I am a little stitious. <laughs> we had an image in our mind of what our summer would look like twice, and both times our hopes were dashed. Our expectations were not met, and that led us to feel things, uh, things like frustration and confusion and sorrow and anger and bitterness. <laughs> Sorry, I'm, I'm over it. <laughs> not really. Okay. All right. Another, another story about expectations. This one doesn't end on a bummer note, promise. Um, a little background, something to know about me is that I really love movies. Um, I am a, totally a film buff. I'm all about the experience of a movie, right? So, like, I will shush people unashamedly who are talking in the middle of a good movie. Um, back in the spring of 2019, four and a half years ago, Cassidy and I opened up Netflix. Has anyone ever, like, opened up Netflix or Hulu or whatever and just, you know, you're kind of hoping that there's something reasonable to watch, right? Talk about low expectations. Um, but this time we opened up Netflix and we saw a movie that we had never even heard of, Spider-Man, Into the Spider-Verse. We gave it a try, and wow, we were absolutely floored. Rock-bottom expectations, sky-high delivery. This movie... If you haven't seen it, you really must. We ended the movie and we're just kind of laughing about how good it was. And I remember I immediately Googled, like, when's the sequel coming out? Flash forward to this past summer. Cross the Spider-Verse in theaters. This time my expectations were high. And uh, it's very rare that I will walk into a movie with high expectations because I just don't want to be disappointed, right? But I, I kind of had a feeling that this movie was not going to let me down. And I was right. It was an incredible movie. I knew what to expect. I had seen the previous film. I had heard the hyped whispers, a recipe for high hopes. Do you see how hopes and expectations share or uh, shape a lot of the way that we experience our lives? Hopes and expectations shape the way we experience our lives. They directly impact our emotions based on how our hopes are met or unmet and how our expectations are lived out or changed. Hopes and expectations determine not just what we feel, but also what we do. Expectations, to say it again, determine not just what we feel, but what we do. I'll be honest, I feel a little apprehensive, a little hesitant planning another summer vacation. Right? Maybe I should try winter. I'm over it. Okay. No, I'm not. This week, <laughs> this week we are continuing to look at Jesus' story through Matthew's eyes, and we're going to be considering his hopes and expectations about who the Messiah, the Savior of Israel, would be. Last week, Brandon led us through a brief history of the Bible up to Matthew, and I mean, he covered a lot from Adam and Eve to Abraham to David, and I'm so glad that he did because it's it's truly important to get that context for Matthew's message. But I also realized that the concept of the Old Testament informing the New Testament may be new to some of us. The reality is, though, that everything in the New Testament, um, everything that the New Testament authors write, comes from the expectations that have built up regarding the Old Testament. Okay, everything the New Testament authors write comes from their expectations regarding the Old Testament. More broadly speaking, also, any 
I mean, a good question to ask any author is what, what are their expectations? What's on their mind when they're writing? What are their worldviews? What are their biases? What are their expectations? Have you ever asked these questions before starting a book? So who's our author, Matthew? Well, to review from Brandon, because he already mentioned a lot of these things, we know from the Gospels that Matthew was a disciple of Jesus. He was one of the closest 12, in fact. We also know that Matthew was a Jewish tax collector. And finally, most Bible scholars agree, not only is Matthew very Jewish, his gospel is largely written with a Jewish audience in mind. So why do these things matter? Well, knowing that Matthew was Jewish helps us understand his worldview a bit better. The Old Testament was his primary source of religious literature, as well as a primary source of pop culture for him. He would have known it really, really well. If he's intent on communicating to Jews like himself about Jesus, we might be able to interpret some of his references as well as the way that he tells his story. We might be able to interpret some of his references as well as the way that he tells his story. We'll be reading from chapters 2, 3, and 4 this evening. So we got to get started. Uh, go ahead and start turning there now to Matthew chapter 2. And as you're turning there, I'll just say with our three chapters come three main events in Jesus' story. We've got Jesus' birth, Jesus' baptism, and Jesus' temptation. His birth, his baptism, and his temptation. These are very iconic events in the story of Jesus. And you may already have thoughts or expectations in your mind about what's going on here. At first glance, I'll say Matthew, it, it looks like Matthew's just telling a story. But as we look closer this evening, I hope you'll be, be able to see the excitement in Matthew's mind as he's considering who Jesus really is. So hopefully by now you're at Matthew 2, again, first book in the New Testament, chapter 2. We're going to read the whole chapter, starting in verse 1. It says, after Jesus was born in, in, in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them, asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king... They, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. All right, pause. Just checking in. How are we doing? Yep. So far, this is kind of the classic children's Bible Christmas story. 
Uh, you may have heard some version of this story approximately a thousand times. And um, we're going to keep reading, but I'll warn you, it's actually about to get a little bit disturbing. And this, this part like might get left out of the children's Bible version. Um, we're, we're just dealing with clearly evil people. And Matthew, like all biblical authors, is not interested in glossing over terrible events in human history. So let's, let's take a look at verse 13. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, yet again, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. Guys, appreciate you hanging in there with me. We just read a lot. If you're sitting next to someone who has fallen asleep, would you just gently, very gently, just kind of dig into their ribs a little bit with your elbow? Yep. Okay, thank you. We're all awake. I mentioned earlier that, um, that Matthew, being a Jew, has some sort of expectation and hope about the Jewish Messiah. The Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament writings, are searching for a savior for Israel. This is going to be a person who will stand up to corrupt authorities and who will teach the people the correct way to live so that they will receive God's blessing. Did you see any references to the Old Testament in this chapter? Yeah, you may have noticed that Matthew keeps overtly pointing out these fulfillments, right? He name drops the prophets Micah, Hosea, Jeremiah, and then more generally just the prophets, all inside this single chapter. Let's take a look at chapter 3 now, and this one we'll skip around a little bit. Um, one important detail is that from chapter 2 to chapter 3, approximately 30 years have passed. It doesn't say, but that's... That's true. So, 30 years later, verse 1 says, In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, another Old Testament prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Okay, pausing briefly. John the Baptist, he's doing his thing. He's calling people to wake up and start following the one true God. And 
you know, his primary method of doing this is by dunking people in the river and then pulling them out, right? Like this is supposed to be a symbolic gesture of repentance, kind of like death to the old self and in with the new. Um, and uh, just one more point before we go any further is that at, at this point in the story, Jesus hasn't begun his ministry. He has no following, no disciples. He hasn't claimed to be the Messiah. But John the Baptist appears to have some sort of inside scoop. So let's skip down to verse 13. Verse 13, chapter 3. It says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. <coughs> but John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. All right. John the Baptist sees Jesus approaching, and he kind of has this light bulb moment, like, oh my gosh, you're the Messiah, huh? And so when Jesus comes to John saying, I'm ready to get baptized, John is understandably a bit confused. He asks Jesus this pretty legitimate question. Why would you need to get baptized? Right? He's confused. Perhaps he has different expectations. And Jesus' response keeps the tone pretty cryptic. He just says, let it be so now. It's proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. I kind of picture John just sort of standing there like, okay, but why? (laughs) No explanation, no Bible verse reference. Jesus isn't quoting a prophet. It's just basically, this is the way. We're going to go into our final chapter for this evening. And again, don't be afraid to just, you know, very, very gently, of course, just, yep, I see you. (laughs) Don't fall asleep. Okay, here we go. Last chapter, chapter four. Then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you're the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, Throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, well, you know, it's also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God, and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. I'm going to briefly pause here, point out the book that Jesus is quoting from, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy. 
This is the fifth book in the Bible, holds special relevance for our understanding of Matthew's expectations. We will come back to that. Just wanted to point it out. Looking at verse 12, in chapter 4, verse 12 to the end of the chapter, we see Jesus begins his public ministry. He calls his initial disciples to start following him, and, you know, they just, like, drop their jobs and go, which is kind of cool. Jesus begins a circuit of teaching in synagogues. He's healing people's diseases miraculously. He's casting out demons. And then the last verse of the chapter says, large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. And plot twist, one more verse in chapter 5. Here we go. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. Okay, I'm just going to remind us what we're looking for here. How is Matthew convincing his audience that Jesus is the Messiah? How is he convincing his audience that Jesus is the Messiah? We've seen the Old Testament Bible references, right? Have you seen those? Yeah? There's, um, there's also something a little more subtle happening here. One passage of Scripture that every good Jewish child would have known is this passage from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. Moses says, The Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. Okay? The Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses, from among you, from your fellow Israelites. So if Matthew is looking <coughs> and waiting for this figure that will save Israel, one question he's going to be asking is, is Jesus the prophet that's like Moses? Okay? Is Jesus the Deuteronomy 18 guy? Who, uh, who here is familiar with Moses? Have you ever heard of him? Yep, a few people. Moses is a really, really, really big deal to Matthew's Jewish audience, okay? So big of a deal, in fact, that they made several movies about him. <laughs> um, the best one is Prince of Egypt, also. <laughs> Side note, I mentioned I'm a big movie guy, right? Yeah. Yeah, the music alone. Whew. Few things that you should know about Moses is that he predates Jesus by approximately 1,400 years. Yep, he is old. Moses is one of the most revered Israelites in the nation's history. He's a huge deal to the Jews. If I didn't say that before, which I know I did. Moses' story spans four books of the Old Testament, and he's credited with having written the first five. So he's kind of writing about himself, which is interesting. Um, and, you know, Matthew and his audience would have been on the lookout. Their expectations about the Messiah would be tied up in this verse from Deuteronomy 18. The Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me, like Moses, from among you, your fellow Israelites. So let's learn a little bit more about Moses, okay? Who's Moses? What's his story? Well, as I mentioned, Moses' story spans quite a few years. For starters, Moses is born during a scary time in Israel's history. They're all living under Egyptian oppression, they're not even really an established nation yet. Um, they're more of a people group with kind of a vague national identity. But God is causing them to be fruitful whilst under their Egyptian oppression. So much so 
that the king of Egypt gets threatened by them and he orders that all the male babies be killed. Moses' mom, however, is a godly and wise woman, so she keeps her, bi- her, her baby safe. And she actually does this in kind of an counterintuitive way, right? She puts her baby, Moses, in a mini ark, a basket, that floats down the, the Nile River out of the king's reach. Moses grows up and eventually leaves his homeland, spending 40 years in the wilderness. And he has an encounter with, with God, where he is tempted to doubt God. And, you know, he just barely cobbles a, uh, together enough faith to trust his God And then he'll return to Egypt to save his people from their oppression. And what's the first thing that he does? He brings them to a mountain, Mount Sinai, to both receive and impart his teaching to the Israelites on how they ought to live to please their God. Are you with me? Yep, how did I do? Okay, so I'm kind of just covering the bullet points of the story. This is Moses' story in a nutshell. Perhaps you've heard the phrase, um, history repeats itself. Has anyone ever heard that? Yeah. Well, so there's also a counter to that concept that Mark Twain once said. Um, he said n- history never repeats itself, but it does often rhyme. Mark Twain. That is basically to say, in my understanding, nothing is exactly replicable, but people are people. And we oftentimes find ourselves in very similar situations. History never repeats itself, but it does often rhyme. This is a great way to describe a lot of what we see in Scripture, actually. Moses' story actually sets up the rest of Israel's story as a nation very well. Right as Moses' story is concluding, Israel's story begins, and it's kind of a, a little bit of a repeat. So let's look at Israel a little bit. They're in Egypt during a time that Egyptian oppression is pretty bad. Then they're led by Moses through chaotic waters, this time it's the Red Sea, into the wilderness, where they will live for 40 years. They doubt God, and then they finally return to their original homeland, the promised land, where they tragically fail to remember the teaching and pass it on to their kids. Do you see how history isn't repeating itself exactly, but it is kind of rhyming? Now, looking at Jesus, according to Matthew, Jesus is also born in a time of oppression. This time it's Rome. He is also saved from a tyrannical king, Herod. He flees to a foreign land. He passes through the waters. This time it's the Jordan River. It's his baptism. He spends 40 days in the wilderness where he's tempted to doubt God but doesn't. He returns home to save his people and establish the kingdom of God. Can you see how Matthew is mapping Jesus' story directly on top of Moses and Israel's story? Are you starting to see how important it is for us to understand the Old Testament scriptures so that we can understand the gospel? Matthew is illuminating the ways that the Old Testament sets up the story of Jesus. Now, the final step in Jesus' story is the teaching part, right? And how does that work out in Jesus' story? Well, Matthew leads us, as we read, directly into the Sermon on the Lawn. Psych? 
the Sermon on the Mount, right? Just like Moses. Okay, question in Matthew's mind, is Jesus the prophet that's going to be like Moses? Yeah, I mean, it seems pretty clear when you put it like that. Matthew has seen into the Spider-Verse, and he is walking into across the Spider-Verse. <laughs> Not only is Jesus the prophet that Moses spoke of, but Jesus is also living or reliving Israel's story. He's replaying parts of their history and nimbly avoiding their failures. Doesn't it make you want to know, like, what is Jesus' mountain teaching going to be about? Over the next few weeks, we will get to look at what Jesus is, uh, gave to the people for his teaching. But for right now, this week, I'm really hoping that I've been able to show you at least a little bit of who Matthew hoped Jesus would be. So now let me ask you, who do you hope Jesus to be? Ask yourself the question, who do I hope Jesus is? Matthew wants to convince you that Jesus is Israel's Messiah that will bring peace to the whole world. What are your expectations? Maybe you've thought of Jesus as a, a teacher of like really good morals. Like he said a lot of stuff and some of it is spot on, some of it's kind of weird. So I'm just going to pick and choose and not take it too seriously. Or maybe you've thought of Jesus as a sort of gentle, kind passive figurehead of religion, right? Like, it's pretty much the default religion in this country, and everyone is kind of saying the same things. Maybe you've never considered that Jesus lived the life with all of its questions, conundrums, hurdles, hardships, and pains that you live. Has anyone here ever felt conquered by something? Have you ever felt like you just couldn't catch a break? Have you ever experienced chaos in your life? Maybe you're coming from a hard home life and you're happy to be gone from it for a little while. Maybe you already feel behind in your classes. <laughs> Maybe you're unsure how you're going to pay for those classes. Have you ever run from your problems? Have you ever doubted God? Guys, these are questions that the Bible says people ask. This book is full of stories about people grappling with these things. And these stories aren't just their stories. They're ours. History rhymes. The Bible knows that we, the people are people. And God knows that you are a human being with struggles. Have you considered that Jesus was a human being with struggles? Have you considered that Jesus was a human being with struggles? Hebrews 4.15 says, We have Jesus who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. I'm going to invite the worship team up as we conclude. What would it mean for you to allow Jesus to show you who he is himself? What would it mean for you to allow Jesus to show you who he is himself? I want to challenge you to re-examine your expectations about Jesus. I want to challenge you to come to him with open hands this quarter and acknowledge that there could perhaps be something that he wants to show you about himself and hey i recognize that for, for some of you you're coming to jesus like i went into across the spider verse you're already sold sounds good sign me up 
And for other, uh, others of us, you may be approaching Jesus with a degree of hesitancy. Like maybe you're approaching him like I am approaching my next summer vacation. Maybe you've had really challenging experiences with church. Maybe you've been hurt or betrayed by Christians and you're grappling with your belief. If that's you, I just want to say I'm so sorry that that has happened to you. But I really believe that God has something to show you this quarter about who he is and who you are. What would it mean for you to loosen your grip on your expectations and allow Jesus to show you who he is himself? This quarter is all about Jesus, learning who he is, what he has to say for our lives, and what he did to bring us truly fulfilling life in this one and for eternity. Lord Jesus, we do come to you with with open hands. I come to you with open hands and recognize that um, there's ways that I even think of you um, or expectations that I have of you that I need to let go of. God, would you help us to all do that? Um, would you would you affect our hearts right now as we go into this time of worship and just help us to release our expectations? God, I pray that you'd show each and every one of us who you are through your scripture as we look at Matthew, as we study the Bible in core. Um, God, thank you that you have revealed yourself. Jesus, thank you that you came and you actually lived the life that we are living. Thank you that you can empathize with us. We pray that you would receive our worship and that you would be blessed. Amen. <laughs>